Tonight we're on Ezekiel 4 and Ezekiel 5. We will get through both chapters. They're both on the same prophetic message. Now he says here in verse 1, You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Now, there's actually some debate on this as to whether these actions are literal or figurative. I really don't see why there's any debate to it, except for the fact that they are kind of extreme things that God asked Ezekiel to do. But there are other prophets who had to do things of this nature, not quite this severe, but that was all real. Some people are actually trying to say that this happens in his vision or happens in his mind or he he just kind of sees it as happening or a dream and then relates it to people. But this seems to be something very literal to me. But since there is some debate out there, I thought I'd at least mention that to you. So what he does is he takes a clay tablet. This is a clay tablet that they would do their writings on. They, they would uh, Anything that they would have that was written that would be put into a library of sorts would be on this type of a tablet. And he says, what you're supposed to do is draw the city on it, the city of Jerusalem. So this way, if any of the captives were coming by, they would be able to recognize that this is Jerusalem. They would recognize the temple. They would recognize the towers. They would recognize some of the things that are unique about the city. I'm sure that they haven't all had an aerial view of the city. But they certainly have seen it from a high point and would be able to recognize that this particular city is the city of Jerusalem that is on the clay tablet. So he says, once you do that, to uh, lay a siege against it, build a siege wall, and heap up a mound against it, and set camps against it also and place battering rams against it all around. So this is to show that there is a siege against this. So he was to make some battering rams. He was to uh, build a mound against it and show that this city is under siege. Now before in the previous chapter, he had his hands bound, or uh, at least uh, that's what the Lord says, that he would bind his hands. But obviously his hands are free while this is going on. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to do all these things that he is asked to do in this prophecy. So he says, Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. It's The iron plate is <clears throat> probably a, uh, a plate that you would set in an oven or on a fire and bake bread or such things as that. So he was to take that and put it between him and the little city that he built. And he said, set your face against it, and it shall be besieged. So this iron plate <clears throat> that would be there, it could represent sin between God and his people. The iron plate might represent that, with Ezekiel representing God, which of course he would be doing as the prophet. Or perhaps it's part of the siege, with God being behind those in the siege. I would kind of tend to the, to the first thought, that is representing the sin between God and His people. And though they want God to deliver them and they want God to, to help them, I think by, by doing this, He is showing that God has a barrier between Him and His people and therefore is not able to help the city out in this siege. 
Then says in verse 4, Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days, and I have laid on, on you a day for each year. Now it seemed that by laying on his left side and laying on his right side that more than likely laying on his left side he would be facing north representing the northern tribes and the 40 days he'd be facing south laying on the right side. The numbers here, 390 days on his left side. There is some, uh, a little bit of disagreement in this in the numbers. The Septuagint in most of the versions we have show 190 years. There are some that have 150, and there are a few that agree with the Hebrew. There are a few historians who feel that the uh, Septuagint actually had, <clears throat> had the right numbers, and that the Hebrew that, uh, ones that we have were actually later, and they made a correction. And uh, I'm not sure which way to tell you to do, go, but we'll we'll tell you what we can, what sense we can make of the numbers, as best that we have it here. If you look at it as 390 days, and there's a number of ways to to, to look at it. Most of the stuff I was looking at was taking the 390 days and the 40 days and going from the point of captivity and going forward. But it may actually be a going past and the 390 uh, days. Representing, of course, 390 years. We know that because God said it. There's a few other prophecies where a day represented a year. Uh, you remember that 40 days for the days that the spies were in the land? That uh, God says, all right, one year for each day. And so that's one place where you have the one year per day transfer. But that's not always the case. Sometimes God says a day, he means a day. But in this particular case, he's saying that each day would represent a year. So we know that 390 days represents 390 years. What we don't know is what that uh, comes from. Or if you go with the Septuagint, 190 or 150. So there's a number of different things to look at for this that are interesting. One would be if you take 390 and you add 40 to it, because this is uh, one of the things that, that we can debate about this, he is 390 days on one side, and then at the conclusion of that, he is 40 days on the other side. As you get further into the prophecy, we find out that for the 390 days, he is to eat a certain diet, but it doesn't prescribe that for the 40 days. Do the 40 years for Judah run concurrent with the 390? If that were the case, then at 350 years for the others, it would pick up for the 40 years and you have them both running at the same time. So if you do that and you go backwards or forwards, then you're looking for an event that is either uh, 390 days in the future or 390 days in the past for which Israel would also have a 40-day or Judah would also have something that was 40 days from them. Judah was around longer than Israel was. So people were trying to put the, together days and times that would try and coincide with the, the end of this. Here's uh, part of the problems with that. The northern tribes up in the north, they, don't, did, they do not get restored. They're done. 
the 390 uh, years is not a, a part of mercy. God's going to bring them back. He does not bring the northern tribes back. They get scattered and they are called the lost tribes. The people of the south, Judah, were put into a captivity where they were all kept together. Now, the south was made up of almost all the tribes because many of them had come from the north when they decided to forsake Israel or forsake the God of Israel. And so Judah represented most of the tribes. They had them there. But as far as God was concerned, he looked at Judah as a tribe of Judah. Sometimes Benjamin would be thrown in. And, of course, the Levites were in there as well. But when the division was made, you had ten tribes in the north and one tribe in the south. Now, 40 years, this is an interesting little play on the numbers. There are 10 tribes in the north. And the punishment that people would go through was 40 stripes in the in the Old Testament. And, of course, they also tacked on the part they would minus one just to make sure that they were a little bit, bit under that. So that's where 39 stripes had come from. If you had 10 tribes in the north and you put one of these tri- punishments on each each one of those tribes, you would come out with 390 years. But then you don't have 39 years in the south, you have 40 years in the south. So that's a, that's another fun thing. Now here's another part with the math that'll be interesting. You add the 390 years together, if you say they don't run concurrently, but they run at the end, you take 390 years and add 40 years to it, you're going to come up with a number you may recognize. 430. And 430 is the year of the first captivity of Israel, which was under Egypt which coincidentally was divided into two periods, 390 and 40. 390 years up until the time of Moses, and 40 years later, Moses came in as a deliverer. He went in exile for 40 years. So it is kind of interesting that you have a 390 and a 40. What is also interesting is a particular prophecy in the book of Hosea. In chapter 8, verse 13, it says, For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now, he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Now, this is not, this is speaking of the, the captives, the, the uh, current plight of them. And just a few verses later, in Hosea chapter 9, verse 3, They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim, that's the north, shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Now, that's the northern tribes. It's talking about the Assyrian exile that they put them in. But again, a return to Egypt. So two times in this, in this uh, prophecy, you have the mention of returning to Egypt. And of course, Egypt's captivity was 430 years, 390 and 40 so it's interesting to play around with with those particular numbers. The a few other problems that you have with with the way that you interpret this is there is only one city that is spoken of. It is the city of Jerusalem. If you try and take the 390 years for something solely for the north then the 390 years would not point to the city of Jerusalem, but to the city of Samaria. And when Samaria fell, which was the northern capital, the the head of that one. But Samaria is not mentioned. The only thing that you have is the city of Jerusalem that is mentioned. That's the only city that is depicted on the clay tablet. 
So the siege is about Jerusalem. So if you try and tie in the north for 390 years and something that occurs with the north for them to fall, Samaria is not mentioned. When Jerusalem falls uh, with, with Nebuchadnezzar, it has no bearing on the northern tribes because the northern tribes are already gone. So what does the prophecy relate to? Are the 390 years picking up right after each other? Do they run concurrent? So I think some of our clues are in the fact that this prophecy is about the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem only and no other city is is being mentioned here. When you look at it as just centered around the city of Jerusalem, maybe I'll look at this again. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you shall lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of days, 390 days. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, and then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Now in the north, let's just look at a little bit of the, the history. Here in the north, when they broke apart, it was under Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And under Rehoboam, they still were somewhat of a God-fearing country. Under Solomon, of course, idolatry had been introduced and under Rehoboam, it, it had continued. And when Jeroboam had split off in the north, he took them completely into an idolatrous way. Israel would go back and forth between being godly and God-fearing and uh, forsaking God. And God constantly was working with them. He would send prophets to them and he would tell them the older sister, the younger sister, prophecies along those lines. And he was trying to get both of them to come on back and he wanted Israel to follow in the way of Judah, who was following after God, but Judah kept going after the idols of the other sister. And so instead of Judah being the example to Israel, they followed the example of Israel and fell into the same sins. So God was continually dealing with them together. <clears throat> I think what we're going to have is a better interpretation of this prophecy is... Uh, not that they run congruent, that they run one after another, and not that they run congruently. I don't think either um, interpretation is right. That the 390 years ends and the 40 years does not begin right after, even though in the prophecy it does, because you only have one city, and that one city is Jerusalem. The thing with Jerusalem is it does not fall once, it falls twice. And I would think that this prophecy actually points to its two falls, not its singular fall. So the 390 years, 190 years, or 150 years, whatever number is actually the, the true number, is actually speaking about the first fall of Jerusalem for which Israel has fallen. And then there would be a second fall. But what you're going to see here is you're going to see 390 years or 190 years or 150 years of grace that God gave to Israel. And then the city fell. And then you're going to have this go on again, but the second time is going to be much shorter. You're going to have 40 years of grace and the city will fall. Now you remember when Jesus came on the scene in the New Testament, he was prophesying destruction. 
he prophesied destruction of, of Jerusalem. He, and they, they got upset with him on some of the prophecies he would make on this. So it seemed that the destruction of Jerusalem was already in place. They had rejected the prophets and now they were about to kill the son. So in the first group, 390 years, 190 years, 150 years, whichever number it truly is, you're going to see a much more extended grace period and then the city falls. But in the second prophecy, 40 years, you're going to see a much shorter grace period because in this one, they rejected and killed the father's son. I would think that's a little bit more of an accurate way of, of looking at this. It's not one fall of the city, it's two falls of the city. Because two times it's going to undergo, undergo a siege. Two times it's going to under, undergo the uh, battering rams. Two times it's going to undergo famine. Two times it's going to fall and the walls are going to come down. If you took the numbers, 390 years from the time that Israel falls, which is around 584 B.C., when Babylon comes in and destroys it. They had come in a few other times and done other things, but if you look at when it came in and destroyed it, if you go back 390 years, you're going back somewhere into the period, I believe, of David's reign. There isn't too much in David's reign, I think we can say, that the the period of grace began. You'd have to probably go to the time of Solomon when he started to, to bring in the idolatry. But 390 years won't take us to, to the period of Solomon. There isn't too many ways to, uh, to get to that. If you look at the 190 years and go back in there, I couldn't find any significant event that occurred anywhere near the 190 years. If you go back to the number of 150 years, that's the only one I could find that had anything significant that you could come up with. And on that one, you had the, uh, the first captivity which came under Pekka in 731 B.C. That is going to be a few years off of our 150 years because uh, uh, Jerusalem either fell in 586, 584. depends on which calendar you're looking at. But if you take this this back 150 years from the time that Pekah had taken them into captivity, you're going to go back to 581. So it's, it is close. It's not quite there. But what we do know is that it meant something to the people there because they don't give a whole lot of explanation for it. Ezekiel doesn't feel like he needs to explain what the days represent, what the years represent. So it would seem that for the people that are there, the ones that the prophecy is directed to, they know what he is referring to as far as the, the time is concerned. Let's see. So the prophecy could be regarding the two falls of Jerusalem, is what I put in your, your blank there. The second fall was in 70 A.D. after a shorter period of grace of 40 years. They didn't get as much grace. They got a lot of grace in that first time before that city fell. I mean, God put up with an awful lot of idolatry under many different kings and many different generations until God finally said under Josiah, all right, y'all can repent, but I'm still going to bring this on. And God even relented for the time of Josiah. Gave them even more grace there. Verse 7, Therefore you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arm shall be uncovered and you shall prophesy against it. And Surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. Now the word, the part here of his arm being uncovered may represent an active involvement in the siege and not a mere bystander. That God is actively involved in this. In Isaiah 52 and verse 10, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations 
and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So it seems to show we, he, the, the lack of a sleeve shows we we're, we're here to do some work. You know, when you when you get ready to do some heavy work, you roll up your sleeves. That type of a of a thing going on. So he is to take his sleeve and not have one on that arm, so that he's laying on one side, but that arm, other arm, is free. That God is actively involved in this. He is not a bystander. He is not sitting on the sideline just watching this thing go on. Because a lot of the prophecies that they were getting were prophecies that said, uh, you know, this is only temporary. They gave prophecies, these false prophets that would stand up, were telling them God was on their side. That, that God was going to come and deliver them. God is going to help them. What Ezekiel is combating here is that mentality that says God is, is with you, God is going to bring you out of this, and God is saying through Ezekiel, I am not with you, I am for your enemies, and they are doing my bidding by coming here. And that should scare them. Because that goes against what they have been to believe by some of these false prophets and what they want to believe. Also, take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, billet, and spelt, and put them in one vessel and make bread for, of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food which you shall, which you eat shall be weight 20 seconds a day from time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure one-sixth of a hen from time to time you shall drink. Now, on these days when he was laying there, 390 days and then 40 days when he's laying there, it would seem from these verses that he did not lay there 24 hours a day. It would seem that he had a certain time that he would show up, kind of like showing up for work, and that he would show up and that he would lie on his side, but that he could get up other times and prepare his food and prepare the meal for what he was going to be in the next day. That's what it would it seem. It certainly is an open possibility to that. And the children of Israel probably knew that this was this was going on. Remember in the, in the chapter before, God said he was going to hold his tongue until he gave him words to speak. So right now, it doesn't seem like he has words to speak. He has actions to show. But he's not allowed to explain it. And so people are just going to know that uh, after he was in a trance, or not trance, but he had, so he was dazed, for seven days for the things that he had seen and the people saw that he was dazed and after the end of seven days then he spoke but then God said I'm going to uh, stick your tongue to the roof of your mouth and you're not going to speak until I loose it when I give you something to say so it would seem that this first prophetic act that he has is all show he doesn't speak during it he just demonstrates to them what's going on and so they have to piece a lot of this stuff together or figure this out but after a while, you know, remember there's no TV, there's no movie theaters, there's no radio, there's all that entertainment. So um, after a while, people said, hey, let's go down and see the show down by Ezekiel. Because they know at a certain time he would come on out and they don't know what he's going to do today. And so they came on out to, to see. So he probably had an audience and they would come on out and they would watch what it is that he would, he would be doing. And that was the intention that they would see. And so he had these grains and he would make bread out of it. Now I'm not one who can convert all the old measurements but I am told that his daily intake here for the 20 shekels of bread was about 8 ounces. About 8 ounces of bread from a mixture of grains. Now this is all you got to eat. I don't know if he was allowed to eat other stuff other times but that's all he's allowed to eat. So, so think about this. 8 ounces of bread every day. 
And that's it. And he's allowed to drink some water. And again, from time to time, of course, you, if that's all you got, it's, you're not going to be eating the whole time that you're laying there on your side. But from time to time, you would do it. That water is about one pint. So one pint in the day. But you're laying outside, under the sun. I don't think uh, he was allowed to have his. <laughs> There's no mention of shade. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have that. And so he goes ahead and he, he does this. And verse 12, And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. So he had to uh, get all these materials out there and lay them on out. And then he had to lay on the side and then bake all these these ingredients. And he's supposed to bake it over human waste in their sight. He wants God wants them to see what they're doing. So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I've, I will drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come in my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. So he was okay with only eating eight ounces of bread in the day. He's okay with just one pint of, of drink. But he said, uh, cook this over human waste. That would make the food defiled and that would make him defiled. He said, hold on a minute. I've not defiled myself all the days of my life. Don't make me do this now. And God says, don't worry. I'm giving you cow dung instead of this. So, so, and which was not an unusual fuel for them. Unusual fuel for us. Apparently it was not an unusual fuel for them. I can't imagine going out there and lighting up cow dung, but apparently that's the thing that they would do. So he got a little bit uh, of a protest about this. Now this was to show how scarce food would become in Jerusalem. It would also demonstrate to them that they would um, they would have to ration the food. They would eat food as unsure of where tomorrow's food would come from and they would eat defiled food. Verse 16. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and shall drink water by measure and with dread that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. Now, you know that God says don't be anxious about anything, but He's telling them you're going to be anxious about this eating because they're disobeying God. Because they have put themselves into a place of of judgment. Now, in verse 1, chapter 5, And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard, then take scales to weight and divide the hair. So it would seem that this is after the 390 and 40 but it it may be possible that it's during it. It would seem to me, though, that it's after. You shall burn the, uh, with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the, when the days of the siege are finished. And you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword. And one-third shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out the sword after them. So we're still in demonstration mode. We still have our city set up with the siege all around it. And so he's supposed to take the first third... And he's supposed to put it in the midst of the city. He's taking his hair. And he's putting one third of that in the midst of the city. And he's going to burn it. 
And this is going to show them that inside the city, one-third of the people are going to die there. This is after after the siege is finished. Not just uh, who's going to die with the pestilence and so forth, but they're going to be burned with, with fire. And you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword. And one-third you shall scatter in the wind. So we first have the one-third who dies in the midst of the city. This is those who would die. I, I, he makes the distinction of the, of the um, siege being finished after the first third. So the first third, some of them are going to die in the city as the siege walls fall and as the armies come in and start to, to kill the people. And some of them are going to die from the pestilence and some of them are going to die from the famine and other things will go on. But then once the siege wall falls, or once the siege wall is successful and the walls fall, then one-third are going to flee. Or one-third are going to be involved in the defense of the city. And one-third are going to die by the sword. And so what he says is, take that one-third of that hair and throw it all around the outside of the city and strike it with the sword. Strike. So he's supposed to take it all around the city and he's going to take his hair that's laying there and he's going to chop it up with a sword to demonstrate to the people that all the people that got outside the city after the wall fell are being chopped up by the sword. And they're dying. And then he says, you shall strike around with a sword and one third you shall scatter in the wind and I will draw out a sword after them. So there is one third that he was supposed to take and throw it up into the wind that it would be scattered. But then he's supposed to chase after with that same sword and he's going to be swiping at the air. And he's going to be slicing some of that hair in the air. And so as they are scattered, as they're leaving, God is saying, you're going to be dying there as well. Even though some of you will... An escape can mean that uh, they be carried away in captivity because many of those died on the way. Some of those died in the places where they were taken captive. He says, I will draw one, I will draw out a sword after them. <clears throat> you shall take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. So there's a small number that he takes and puts in his garment. But even that small number that is put there in the garment, even some of them are going to be burned up. They're going to die. And you remember the the people that were left in the city of Jerusalem, that small number of people that when the uh, uh, the ruler that was appointed over them was killed, they wanted to flee to Egypt. And Jeremiah gave them a prophecy. He says, no, don't flee to Egypt. Stay here. And they said, you're lying. And they fled to Egypt and many of them died. Jeremiah even said, if you do, many of you will die. So that's this small group that was there that was preserved, that hadn't died yet. They didn't die in the city. They didn't die outside the city. They didn't get blown uh, away. There's a small number of them that were kept in the garment. And he, he said some of those would, would be burned up. They would be killed. And that's what happened. And then you shall take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. So the reason that their disobedience was so much greater is because they had the word of God. They had his laws. They had the prophets. They had all these words being sent to them and they disobeyed him. Not all the nations around them had this, had this much. They didn't, they couldn't disobey as much as Israel could because they didn't have as much word as they had. But because of all the words that they had, God says, you are more disobedient than all the nations that are around you. And you've heard the prophecies of the nations that are around you. You've heard the prophecies against Assyria. You've heard the prophecies against uh, other nations that came before them, even the prophecies against Egypt. But you didn't listen to those prophecies. You saw the destruction that came in those nations, but you didn't listen. And you went on. And he says, so you are more disobedient than all the people and all the nations that are around you. And God is saying, I am against you. Now most of the false prophecies show that God is on their side. But again, God says, I am against you. Verse 9, And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again, because of all your abominations. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and the sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One-third of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, and one-third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus says my anger, thus shall my anger be spent and I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be avenged and they shall know that I the Lord have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson and an astonishment to the nations that are around, that are all around you. When I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So God is saying, I will send this famine. I will send this pestilence. I will send the sword. I will even send wild beasts out among you. Just because we are God's children doesn't mean He won't judge us. And that's what He's telling them. They thought this, and there are many prophets who would come up in their midst and say, you are God's children. He loves you. This won't last. And even today, there are many people who try and say, God loves you, God won't judge you. But that's not true. If we do not choose the way of Jesus Christ, if we do not go 
the way of the cross. We do not accept what Jesus Christ has done. There are not many ways to salvation. There is only one. And no matter who prophesies and who says, oh, but God won't send you to hell. God won't judge you. It is wrong because right here in Ezekiel it is as clear as can come. These are my people. These are the ones that I called. These are the ones that I promised. And these are the ones who forsook me, who disobeyed my laws. And if you think I won't judge you, you were wrong. And God came in and judged them. Israel was supposed to be an example to the world of how God blesses his children. Instead, they became an example of how God will judge even his own children. For the next number of chapters, Ezekiel is going to be prophesying some very hard things. Some are going to be through demonstration and some are going to be through word. But for the next number of years, all Israel is going to hear is the destruction of Jerusalem is coming. And God is judging you. And even though you have escaped out here, you are one of those thirds that have gone the way of the wind. And if you don't repent, the sword will come and get you. Fire, pestilence, God will even send wild beasts. But he knows those that are his. But the word is given that they would listen, that they would yield. They have many people in their midst who are great examples to them, Daniel, of course, being one of them. And many of the people that Daniel influenced, I'm sure that Daniel had won some people over. But still, Israel seems to go their own way. Can you imagine having such great examples as Daniel, all his buddies, and all the people that they've influenced, and how strong they were in the kingdom, and yet they still go the way against God? They would have known the stories of the fiery furnace, the stories of the lion's den and how God came and delivered. But he delivered them because they served the God of Israel. Because they didn't defile themselves. And they executed and did what God wanted to be done. But the rest of Israel didn't want to do that. They didn't follow. We have examples for ourselves. People who have gone in the way of faith these are the examples we need to follow because God does not desire to judge his children but he is willing to Father we thank you that your love is great for us but you don't hold us to a different standard than you do the rest and you expect us to obey your word you expect us to follow your way so, Father, every day we're down here on this earth, we want to learn more about you. We can follow your way even more. Because you are good to those who follow your way, who do your will. But judgment will come upon those who don't. We don't have to live in fear of judgment because you've always sent your prophets, you've always sent your word. To let people know this is not the way. But this is the way. Walk in it. And I thank you, Father, that even today your word goes out. Your people are shouting the word of God. And by the spirit that is in us, we can discern what is right and what is wrong. And follow after it. 
I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.